This morning, uh, we are going through uh, what is arguably a, a difficult text, 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22. It's got some great uh, elements as we look at it, and it's also got some things that are really just going to leave you scratching your head. And so let me, let me begin by teaching you a, a theological term, okay? You can write this down. B O O G E R B E A R. You know, booger bear. Um, it's, it's really, you're not going to find that in Wayne Grudem's systematic theological uh, you know, commentary. You're not going to find this in Millard Erickson's systematic. But when you read this passage, you're going to walk away with an understanding this is exactly what this is. It is a booger bear. Um, I may write my own systematic someday. I'm going to work that in. Uh, just so you know, this isn't me being a theological lightweight and just, you know, what's wrong with Matt? Is he, is he too busy to give great care and study? Uh, That's certainly not the case. Let me read from Martin Luther's commentary on this passage. If Luther's up here in his theological understanding, I'm underneath the stage somewhere, okay? And this is is what Luther said, just to kind of give me a, a theological out. Luther said this. He said, this is a strange text. He could stop there, but he goes on. He says, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I feel relief. Do you feel relief this morning? And then he goes on, he says, I still do not know for sure what the apostle meant. You have less confidence now than certainly you did when you walked in this morning, but but let me me go about this in maybe a slightly different way than we normally do. Typically, what my pattern of going through is, tell you what the passage is, explain it, apply it, and move through. I don't give just a tremendous number of shades of it could be this, it could be that. I saved that on Wednesday nights. If you're looking for a a more robust, deeper analysis of what all these things can look at, on Wednesday nights we break this thing down clause by clause in the Greek and walk through it. And you're welcome to to come again when that class starts again at the end of this month. But let me just, let me bring a little bit of that into this, okay? And explain a little bit of just from different shades of meaning. Because one of the the things, or things, as I was going to say, uh, I don't know where that came from. Uh, or from whence that came, if, if that's what tickles you. Uh, one of the things we find in this passage is it gives us an opportunity to not be dogmatic. Uh, oftentimes, as we come through Scripture, we want to recognize that, that salvation in Jesus is absolutely exclusive. There is no other name by which we might be saved. And so we, we want to be dogmatic about that. We want to be dogmatic about the resurrection. We want to be dogmatic about a, a number of different things. Uh, mostly everything pertaining to Jesus and salvation. But when it comes to this, this gives us an opportunity to be open-handed and say, there's disagreement. And there is disagreement across Christendom, and there is, it is okay for us to disagree on our interpretation of this passage. And so let me just start with the most difficult thing. We'll go through this. I'll give you a couple of different ways to look at it, and then I'll explain my take, um, which is the oldest take. Um, but I'll explain my take. I'm not trying to, to prejudice you to believe me, but you should do that anyway, okay? And so certainly, as you look at this, it, it, it contains this odd notion, and let's just look at it really quick. It talks about Jesus. It says he's been put to the end of 18, been put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because, verse 20, because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so there, there are a number of questions about who did he address? Who are these spirits in prison? When did he address them? 
And so looking at one of the, one of the modes of interpretation and, and understanding how this thing goes, there's the thought that what Jesus did was after his crucifixion, crucifixion and prior to his resurrection in the spirit, he descends to hell. And, and then within hell, uh, the interpretation goes, and, and it kind of has various different manifestations according to who you think those spirits are. And so the spirits could possibly be, they could possibly be all those who died prior to the flood. Could be that. They could be all those who died prior to the flood. They could be all those who died prior to the crucifixion. So Jesus goes down and he says, check it out, it's me. Like, I'm what you've been looking for. It's me. And so he preaches this tremendous sermon, which at the end of it says, receive me and those that do go with him to heaven and those that don't stay there in prison forevermore. And so that's, that's a possible interpretation. I, I, I don't agree with that interpretation for a number of reasons, which would take more time than we have this morning to explain, but that is a possible interpretation. One of the more uh, frequent, frequently held and believed in interpretations is, is really located in a number of places. Genesis 6 really being the first place we find this. So if you want to let your fingers do some walking this morning, you can turn to the first book of the Bible. You're going to find the table of contents, and then you'll find Genesis 6. And look at what he says here. Look at what uh, the author of Genesis writes here. He says, When man began to multiply in the face of the land, and the daughters were born to them, and the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive... And so these sons of God, in this particular interpretation, is arguing that these are fallen angels, okay? That these are fallen angels. And so they see them attractive, and they took them as their wives, and the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide with man forever, uh, for he is flesh, his days shall be 120. And so the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, so this is this, this mixture of angelic and human flesh. And so God sends the angels, those fallen angels, and he imprisons them. He imprisons them. And so they found this here in, in Second Peter and in Jude and Revelation, all trying to build this understanding of how this interpretation goes. And so the, the subject or the content of the proclamation that Jesus delivers is he goes down there and he says, sin is defeated. Victory is proclaimed. All the captives are set free. And so he goes down and he proclaims to those rebellious angels who warred against God with Satan that he has won, that he has handedly won the battle. And so that's, that's a prominent uh, interpretation today. Uh, all of those equally valid all have different issues. If you want to buy me lunch over a series of two or three weeks, we can walk through all of these things, okay? Okay. I'll explain mine as we go through. I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way uh, to, in some sense, cloud your minds, maybe set your minds at ease. Uh, this is one of those terrific places where we're able just to open hand and say, brothers, we can disagree, and it's okay. There are a lot of places like that that we can do that, and, and we want to be sure that we're not an overly dogmatic people, uh, spiritually constipated, or however you want to describe it. Okay? Well, look what he says here. Let's walk through this. Let's move from, um, from clear to unclear. Beginning in verse 18, Peter writes and says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he may bring us to God. Well, one of the things we recognize right off the bat is that he has this word for. And so we want to understand, what is this connected to? What is this tied to? And so we find ourselves looking back up into verse 17, and it's been a couple of weeks, and so I would expect that most of you have forgotten. 
And so what he said in verse 17, speaking to us, speaking to the church, is that it is better for you to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we recognize that over the course of our study in 1 Peter, we've talked about a lot, we've looked a lot at the subject of what it is to suffer as a Christian. If you are a Christian in this place, you are not uh, free from suffering. And many of us, this week, we would say that's true. Many of us this week, over the last couple of weeks, we would say that's certainly true. Even though I am a Christian, I found myself still dealing with suffering, still uh, having tremendous difficulties in my life. These are not figments of my imagination. They are not happening because I am sinful. They're not happening because God is displeased with me. They're happening because humanity fell with Adam and Eve and sin entered the world and through sin pain. And some of that pain is visited in our lives. We've lost loved ones. We've had children who are sick. We've lost our jobs. Any other number of things have happened to cause us to suffer. And some of us have suffered because we have stood boldly for the gospel and we have paid the consequence. We've lost friendships. We've lost close acquaintances. We've been uh, placing into jeopardy our position and our place of employment. All because we have stood for the gospel. And recognize this. I just want to say this. This is an aside, but something that comes into my mind. Every time you stand to get somebody who has a different political perspective than you do, don't conflate the gospel with your own particular uh, stand on politics, okay? This is something that's decidedly dangerous. There are positions that you're going to hold on the basis of your interpretation of God's word, but do not equate your position, being a Christian, and everybody who disagrees with you, that you're the only Christian, they have to agree with you, or else they're not a Christian. This is, this is really an untenable place for us. It's not a very gracious place for us, Okay? That's, that's an aside for those of you that are particularly struggling with that. I don't, hadn't intended to talk about that. There's enough politics for everybody to go around on TV these days. Amen? Nobody should have amen that. You should have said, Dad, give me that's true! You know, tricked you, huh? We'll talk later. So getting into verse 17, we recognize that, that we're going to suffer, and it's better for us to suffer unjustly I mean, it's better for us to suffer because it, be, because it would be God's will than for us to suffer for having done evil. And when we suffer, it's this, this unjust suffering that has come into our lives. And this is what God is saying through Peter. He said, don't be stupid in sin and therefore suffer and complain about it. But when you suffer because the world around you has fallen, when you suffer because of your stand for the gospel, that this is good for you. And I don't know about you, but I'm not a person who particularly enjoys suffering. I'm not a person who looks at it and says, oh, oh, please, sign me up. I love some more suffering. I just have, you know, uh, buckets full of time on my hands, and my heart is so uh, full, I would just wish it would be emptied a little bit by inviting some suffering. God, could you please bring that my way? But so oftentimes, we find ourselves, nevertheless, suffering. And so what he does here is he connects our suffering to the suffering of our forerunner, our brother, Jesus. He says, you suffered. Many of you suffer unjustly, but recognize this, Christ also suffered. And his suffering is decidedly different and magnificent. It is awful, but in its awfulness there's a beauty that beckons us. Come, look what he writes here, for Christ also suffered. And then he has this word beside it, he says, once, once. 
You know, from a strictly Old Testament perspective, looking at the subject of the priestly order and kind of the sacrificial system, we recognize if you have read through the Bible, you get into Leviticus, you get into uh, some of these things, Deuteronomy, that talk about how the law is laid out, and you see sacrifice, and you see sacrifice, and it's, you know, this many of this, and this many of that, and, and these are all the different ways this has to be done, and then the, this is how the priest has to care, and, and all these things are laid out, and so one of the things you walk away from with, with a really really solid understanding of, if nothing else, is that it's certainly more than once. It's certainly more than once. It's repetitive. It's, it's for very different things, and it's gone about in a variety of different ways. But So one of the things that immediately catches our eye as we look at this is that it is once. There's this understanding in most of our relationships that if we want to maintain good relationships, we don't do one good thing. We do a series of good things over the course of our marriages, over the course of being parents, over the course of being children, over the course of being an employee, right? And so if you're an employee and you're hired uh, to a job, and maybe you've got a job at one of the new restaurants in town or one of the new stores in town, and you walk in and you kill it. I mean, you're amazing on your first day at work, and everybody's like, we don't have employee of the month, we have employee of the first six hours of the store ever being opened, but your face is on the wall, right? Your face is destined for that. And then maybe at the end of that time, you just slack off and you quit doing anything. Nobody's remembering those six hours that you worked. Everybody's remembering the course of your life forever after that. And we see that true in the majority of our relationships, right? Right? And so it's not enough to have done one good thing. We have to find ourselves doing good things over and over and over again. So what we see here in the person of Jesus is something that is decidedly different and contrary to our experience. Contrary to our interpersonal experiences, contrary to our experiences in the workplace, and contrary to, for many of us, the way we view God. We think God is most pleased in us over the doing good things over the course of our lives. But what we find in this is that God is most pleased with us in the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus. Look what he writes. Look what the author of Hebrews, Hebrews writes in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10, 11 and 12, on this same deal, he says, Every priest stands daily at his service, listen to this, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. They were intimately familiar with this type of of machination. They were intimately familiar with this type of process. The priest stands there, he sacrifices, he moves on. Tuesday rolls around, same thing. Wednesday, same thing. Over and over again, day in, day out, year in, year out, repeatedly offering the same sacrifices. Look what he writes next. Which can never take away sins. They can never absolve humanity of being sinful. Verse 12 But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. So effectively what Jesus does is he goes in and he offers himself once, one single time. He's crucified on a cross for you and for me, and then after that he is able to sit down signifying mission accomplished, job done. There is no further need to absolve humanity of the stain of sin outside of what Jesus has already accomplished. That is great news for us this morning. Many of us find ourselves striving uh, somewhat implicitly to add to the sacrifice of Jesus. And so we find ourselves preoccupied after you come to salvation to work harder and harder and harder. Maybe it's because we see all the various failures in our lives. We recognize the way we talk to our kids, our wife, the stuff we view. 
on, our internet, on the internet, on our phone, on a computer, the jokes we laugh at, the way we engage, the, the frivolous, ambivalent manner that we engage in church in pursuing what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we look at that thing and we have this compunction of guilt. We feel bad. So we double down, man. We work so much harder and pour out so much more of our energy and we do really well and we sprint as hard as we can. And what we're doing in that is we are trying to earn what we could never earn. We're trying to get what we've already been given. Because what we see in this is that Jesus once for all paid the penalty of sin for you. Once. It doesn't need to be added to. And so what we find ourselves instead, and, and, and the direction God would have us to go, is not this pursuit to try and gain God's favor, but this pursuit of love for him, recognizing we already have it. Can I tell you this morning that if you're harboring guilt, if you're carrying around baggage for all the mistakes you've made in your past, and you have already come to know Jesus, let them go. Don't believe it. You've got a husband, you've got a wife, you've got a friend that's communicating to you what a failure you are. You go to them and you say, the sacrifice of Jesus absolves me of that. It's because of the sacrifice of Jesus I'm able to lay that aside and pursue him out of love, not out of guilt, not out of obligation. Christ died, he suffered once. He did it for sins. We recognize that, that in, this, in this death, it wasn't his sin. We absolutely have to understand, perhaps you walked in today for the first time, you've never been in a church before, and you're really curious as to why the Son of God, God come in flesh, would die. Maybe he messed up, maybe he got off course, maybe he's being punished for something. But what we recognize is that the death he died, Paul writes in Romans 6 in chapter 10, it says that the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. You see, it wasn't that Jesus sinned. It is that we sinned. You sinned and I sinned. And I have a variety of sin in my life. Some I do a really good job keeping at bay. Others that just, just continues to come back at me. But I recognize that the atonement for sin, the price paid for the penalty of sin, which Romans goes on to say is death, is separation from God, has been paid by Jesus. He paid for sins. This colossal exchange, this cosmic exchange has taken place. Peter goes on, he says, it, is, it was the righteous for the unrighteous. Lest you believe this morning that you are somehow righteous, that somehow God looks at you and says, oh, lo and behold, I, I missed them in the sea of unrighteousness. But Justin is this bastion of beauty. He is this perfection of, of, of amazing, sinless wonder. Right? He doesn't believe this of himself. Why, friends, should you? I work with this guy. I recognize he's as near to sinlessness as uh, anybody comes in his office recognizing he's the only one that has that office, but nevertheless. And so what we see in this is that Christ is this substitution, the righteous for the unrighteous. And think about it this way, and, and perhaps this is your problem, and, and this is occasionally mine. I recognize I'm not righteous. This is a shock to many of you. But I recognize I'm not righteous. And, and, but, but occasionally, occasionally I find myself just doing a pretty daggum good job putting to death some of the big sins I struggle with. And so I've got these big sins, 
under wraps, and I'm just like, what up? I own you. But I'm so humble. <laughs> don't, don't come back out. And so because I, I find myself doing really well mastering, uh, overcoming these big sins in my life, I look at it, and I would never go on to say that I'm righteous. I would always confess to you that my righteousness is only ever found in the person of Jesus Christ. But this insidious, slow, quiet game of sinfulness I don't ordinarily deal with begins to creep into my life. And a lot of what it looks like is a loss of dependence on Jesus. It's this loss of dependence on Jesus because we're not dealing with these big issues and so we're not dealing with pornography, we're not dealing with adultery, we're not dealing with lying, cheating, stealing. We're not dealing with all these things. And so we find ourselves doing really well with with all the big things and quietly what creeps in is ambivalence, it's indifference. It's this, this lack of felt need for Jesus. It's this quiet, assumed righteousness that we've brought into our lives. But what we read here is that there is only one righteous. Amen? Only one. And his name is Jesus. And it was this cosmic exchange of the righteous for the unrighteous that we read that he may bring us to God. Jesus Christ allowed himself to be put to death for your sins, for my sins, for an express purpose. And we read here in Peter that it is to bring you to God. And so, friend, as you sit here this morning and recognize that if you have not surrendered yourself to come to God, then in absolutely a very real sense, the exclamation, the, 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 the yelling statement that would find you here this morning is come to God. Don't walk, don't crawl, don't put off, but run and run to God. That's what we see here. That in the death of Jesus, the righteous for the unrighteous, it was done for the purpose that you might be brought to God, made holy before God, made righteous before God, made right to have your sins absolved, to have a clean slate, to have God look at you and say, in you I am well pleased because of your union with Christ. He would have you this morning to run Perhaps for you this morning, running looks like bowing your head right where you are, confessing your sin and turning your heart to Jesus. God is there and he waits and he beckons you, run to me, come to me. The righteous for the unrighteous. Look what he goes on to say. He says, he's been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus allowed himself to die in human form. He was completely righteous. All the trumped up charges for Jesus wouldn't stick. And so they, they put this deal together and they demanded, the religious leaders of his day demanded that Jesus be put to death. Perfectly sinless. Without fault. The righteous for you and I. The unrighteous. That he may bring us to God. And this is what that looks like. He was put to death in the flesh. But he, as he goes before us, our, our spiritual brother, our forerunner, Christ, he gives us a demonstration of what it would look like when we have our glorified, our spiritual bodies. He's made alive forevermore, so we recognize that in Jesus, he's giving us this picture that even in suffering, and sometimes suffering that leads to death, death is not the end. Death is not this finality 
For death, there is a separation of destination. For the Christian, there is union with God forevermore. And for the non-Christian, this person who refuses to come to him, refuses to be brought to him, for this person, there is separation from God forevermore. In this place, the Bible refers to as hell. It is that place where God's love does not penetrate, but the place where his wrath is most readily revealed in the obstinate heart of humanity. Heaven and hell. And this is where this passage begins to get difficult. What we find in this next deal is Peter begins to turn his mind and, and to reflect upon one other time when the proclamation of God went forth. And so what we see in here, look at verse 19. Speaking of the Spirit, it says, In which he went, speaking of Jesus, and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. And so we looked at the other two uh, interpretations of this, that he went and he, he proclaimed to the fallen angels, that he went and proclaimed to all those who died in the days of Noah. And so what I want you to do is to flip back over, and I think what is a textual approach, a, an approach that seeks to interpret Peter in light of Peter instead of going to a bunch of other places. Look back at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. Let's turn over a couple of pages. First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, we get this picture of what it is for a prophet to communicate. And prophets being those Old Testament uh, men and women who are communicating for God. And so look what he writes here. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating who was working inside the Old Testament prophets to communicate the salvation that would come. Everybody say Jesus. It's a Sunday school answer and it happens to be appropriate here. Who was working inside the prophets, directing their hearts, communicating to them what they needed to write and say? Everybody say? Jesus. It was Jesus Jesus' spirit, as we read here in verse 11, was indicating to them when these things would happen. These things predicting the sufferings and the subsequent glories. So what we find in this is that there's not necessarily a need to go to these other places. What we find is Peter has already been communicating to us that it was the spirit of Christ at work before Christ within the words and the mouths of the prophets for those uh, things pertaining to his crucifixion, his resurrection, and the subsequent glories. And so what we find in this is not this, this ad descensus inferno that, that Christ went down into hell. It's not this discussion that he preached to the fallen angels. But in very real sense, it's the fact that he indwelt the communication of Noah. He's inspirating Noah. And so in, in Genesis 6 and leading on into 7, what we find is that, that God is, is looking over the course of humanity and he finds that everybody is wretched. Everybody's seeking to follow after their own heart, to follow after all those things that, that satisfy themselves. And so in some ways, it's not so much different than today, is it? It's this way where everybody does things to satisfy, to gratify self. And in this, God goes to Noah and he reckons him righteous said God placed his favor upon him. God looks at, at Noah. He doesn't find a guy doing all the right things, but he finds a guy and he declares him to be right and righteous. 
And so he goes to this guy, and according to 2 Peter, what we find is that Noah then begins to preach. He begins to communicate. He begins to tell those people around him to repent that rain is coming. And they look and they're like, no, what is this rain you speak of? In the days before Noah, it had never rained. Imagine somebody coming to you and saying, uh, in, in five or six weeks, it's going to blah, blah. And you're like, it's going to blah, blah. What is that? And they're like, cars are going to fall from the sky. You're like, okay, well then. Yeah, yeah, that's nice, that's nice, that's nice. Oh, hey, honey, what's going on? Yeah, see, you crazy? I mean, hey, hey. And so you'd find a way out of the conversation. So when people hear from Noah that that this thing is going to happen, this thing which they don't know, this thing which they've never experienced, they begin to doubt the veracity of his statements. They begin to doubt the the intensity of his his brain. They begin to think that Noah's crazy. But for all the time between uh, when Noah is first spoken to by God all the way until the first drops begin to fall, the intensity and devotion of Noah's communication to those around him is to repent. To believe, to enter the ark and be saved. And the whole time he's communicating that, it's not this guy that is necessarily perceived by those around him as is not having it all together, but it's this guy who the Spirit of Christ is communicating through. And so Jesus is communicating to those who are now, who have rejected his word in the days of Noah. And so what Peter does here is he gives us a snapshot, a picture of what happened in the past. And look what he says. This is why they're in prison, verse 20. Because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Many of us have heard the gospel be proclaimed over the course of our lives. We're 50, 60, 70, 80 years old. You're 20, but you feel like a really old 20. You're 15, but you feel like a really wise 15. You're 6, but but who knows? You'll be driving before you know it. You've heard the gospel go forward so many times, and what we see is in the days of Noah, he was out there, and he's communicating the gospel. He's being faithful to do that. He's being faithful to communicate it. He's being faithful to demonstrate it because he's building this crazy boat. He's communicating. He's loving people through what he says and what he's showing them this way where they might be saved. And just as in the days of Noah, so too we find ourselves today when we communicate the gospel, people don't always receive it. I want you to see in this passage the faithfulness of Noah. For over a hundred years, he's communicating the gospel. He's telling people this this proto-gospel. Jesus is testifying through him, communicating it. Nobody's hearing it. It's him, his three sons, his wife, and and his wife, his daughter-in-laws that end up making it into the ark. But still, Noah was faithful to communicate. His communication and the continuance of it wasn't determined by the number of people that responded. He communicated because he was told to. Second Peter tells us that he was a preacher of righteousness. So he's calling people to repent. Just as God today, through Peter, calls us to repent. God is demonstrating his patience towards many of us in this room by giving us repeated opportunities to respond to the gospel. But God's patience won't always be there for you. 
We have this great misunderstanding that, that time is this thing that we have endless supplies of. But time is this thing that, that just lays out there until our time is cut short. A good friend of mine this past week that his, his seven-year-old son's time was cut short. Since the moment he was born, he had this horrid disease. Cancer riddled his body. And repeatedly, over the course of his life, doctors would give him a clean bill of health, then he would have a relapse. A clean bill of health, and then he would have a relapse. That family understood what it is that life is incredibly brief that you're given an unknown amount of time to respond to the gospel. And so it's with tremendous urgency that they move about and communicate the gospel. And through the suffering, God allowed that family to endure. They were able not to become bitter, but to communicate the gospel all over this country through people seeing the undeterred spirit within them. And in in them, it's not this sense of of they're so mighty and they're such a close-knit family, but it's their complete and utter dependence upon Jesus Christ to sustain them, to let them even draw breath, and to stand up off the floor. Imagine for seven years watching your child die, knowing there was no hope, knowing there was no cure, But each moment, they were able to take solace and comfort that death would not be the end for their son because he had come to surrender his life to Jesus Christ. So what we see in this is God's patience waited in the days of Noah over 100 years, 100 years of communicating the gospel. And for 100 years, people were beckoned to come. And in the end, only eight chose to enter the ark. Know that for many of us, when we die and we go to heaven, we'll be absent a wife, we'll be absent a husband, we'll be absent children on the basis of their refusal to come. But still, in this time, while they're living, there is time for them to respond to the gospel, recognizing that Jesus died so that they might come and he put you in their lives so you might communicate the gospel and so that you might demonstrate the gospel. Not through browbeating them over the head and say, look, pastor told us today about this fire insurance, flames in hell are hot and you got to buy some or you're going to go there. You see, somebody coming to belief in Jesus Christ isn't this rational decision that they make, but it's this supernatural change in their heart that God affects for them but still he beckons them come. Now look what Peter does here next. He's trying to mess up all the Baptists in the room. Everybody say, what, what? You get into this next section, and Peter, focusing on the image of water, wants us to understand that there's something greater at work here. And so he says in verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And all the Baptists said, what? Man, I've been gypped. <laughs> What? No, 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 hold on a second. We recognize in this that, that, that if you have been raised 
uh, at least within Baptist circles, you've been raised in a Bible church, you've been raised in a number of other settings, that the idea that baptism saves you is, is anathema. It's something that we disagree with. It's something that we, we push far off. And so we wonder then, what is going on here? Well, let me teach you a hermeneutical tool. This is decidedly more helpful than Booger Bear earlier. And so, just a little bit. Uh, in, interpret, in interpreting Scripture, we move from the easier to understand to the more difficult. Okay? When you come across a passage, you look at it and say, I'm really not sure what that means. And you read it again, you say, I'm still not really sure what that means. And you read it again, you say, I'm still really not sure what that means. It's tantamount to, to taking an exam. And I heard this example from a, from a sermon earlier this week. And he said, you know, when you're taking an exam, and, and as often was the case when I would take exams, I'd come across a math, a math problem and look at it and say, I have no idea. I vaguely remember the professor saying something about sigmatic notation, but I was asleep. Oh, this is hard. And so you go on in, in, in hopes that maybe something later on you study in the test will trigger uh, something amazing in your mind, what well, never did for me in terms of sigmatic notation. Anyway, but within the Bible, what we find is that we are able to in turn, uh, interpret difficult passages in light of easier to understand, uh, more obtuse passages from those which are, uh, give us a greater degree of, degree of clarity. In Acts chapter 2, and really throughout Acts, you find it in Acts 5 as well. But in Acts chapter 2, we find that, that, that in this address, uh, after Pentecost, Peter writes and, and, and Peter speaks. And what we read from the hand of Luke, it says, Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so what we see there is at least there is this pairing also to the idea of repentance. And so it's not merely this idea of being baptized where we're to say, hey, look, give us 10 or 15 minutes. We're going to draw the bath. It's going to be quite warm. Everybody that wants to be saved, we've got a discount special. We're going to run you through. There's nothing special about that water. There's nothing special about the water that you can buy on, uh, you know, from, from Benny Hinn or from anybody else. And they say, buy this thing of water. It's great. It's wonderful. Send a $500 donation to my campaign. And so there's nothing special, intrinsic, or valuable about that water. There's just not. There's nothing special about it. There's nothing where it imbues you uh, with, with sinlessness. And so we find that there must be something else at work here. Mark chapter 10. If you'd like to walk over there with your fingers or just allow me to read it to you. Mark chapter 10, we find that Jesus uses the same idea of baptism in so much of a greater picture. He's describing all the events that are about to take place for him in terms of one word, baptism. He says, you don't know what you're asking, uh, verse 38. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus is communicating to them that, that there's something greater at work. He describes his death, his crucifixion in terms of baptism, this process that he's about to enter into. And then also we see in Romans chapter 6, Paul uses the same idea, the same discussion of baptism. Romans 6, 3 through 5. He says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? And so certainly he's talking about more. He's talking about more than water baptism. Do you not all know that all of us who have been baptized have been baptized into Christ Jesus' death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. 
And so what we find here, what we find here in 1 Peter is that he's not talking simply about baptism. He's not talking about just getting wet. Look at what he goes on even to show us within this passage what he's talking about. He says that it is not as a removal of dirt from the body. When you get into that water, some of you more than others, we see dirt lift up off of you. I've never seen that in these waters. But, but one of the things you see is, is when you take a bath, dirt leaves you. When you take a shower, dirt, grit, grime leaves you. And so what Peter writes, he says, understand that there's nothing intrinsically valuable about the water. There's nothing amazing about the water. Whether it be warm, hot, cold, tepid, perhaps, there's nothing special about this water. It's not the removal of dirt from the body, but look what it is. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Some of your translations might say a pledge to God for a good conscience. What we see is that after somebody believes the truth about Jesus, that he is the son of God come, that he lived a perfectly sinless life, that he laid down the righteous for the unrighteous. When you believe in that, you believe that he was raised from death and now sits at the right hand of God. When you come to believe that and you turn from sin and turn towards Jesus in the midst of this, and when you then are baptized, you are making an appeal to God for a good conscience. Let's look again in Hebrews 10. I apologize, this is one of these uh, occasions where it is so important for us to look at, at the wide breadth of Scripture instead of just staying in 1 Peter, which is normally our course. 1 Peter 10, speaking on this idea of, of a conscience, let's, let's back up to verse 19 of chapter 10. He says, Therefore, brothers, since we have the confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that is open to us through the curtain that is through his flesh... And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What is he talking about there in this idea of the good conscience? It's not that we have put off all these things. It's that we have put on Jesus. Good conscience for the Christian is filling themselves up with Jesus. Do you understand this? It's not, it's not behavioral modification. It's not becoming different or better or perfect. It's becoming filled more completely with the person of Jesus. That's what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10. What we see is this appeal to God in the good conscience in the midst of baptism. When we have you in those waters, we say, who do you say Christ is? And you say, he is my Lord. Signifying, signifying you are placing yourself in submission to him and pledging pledging to live a life in fidelity to the scriptures. This is why we baptize confessing adults. Because we think it takes a confessing adult to recognize the commitment that they're making. Somebody who comes to understand is able to make this adult-type decision. And so maybe for you this was when you were quite younger, but, but in this vein, in this understanding, this is why we move and we don't baptize babies. Now, there's different interpretation. We could talk about that later. Again, it's going to take five or six weeks if you're buying me lunch. But it's this appeal. 
It's the person making this appeal, and then the rest of their life is lived in the demonstration of the, the veracity of the claims they're making. But all of these claims, look what he says here. All of these claims, this appeal, this pledge, is through the resurrection of Jesus, the end of 21. Baptism doesn't save them. Baptism is a sign of their confession of Jesus. And it is a demonstration and an appeal to God that his resurrection would make them clean. That his resurrection would make them clean. Now look at verse 22. Speaking of Jesus again, he says, Jesus has gone into the heaven as the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. When Peter began this section, he connected the idea of Christ's suffering to our suffering. We have the tendency to be so myopic in our suffering. And this has kind of been my week. We get suffering, everything else bleeds out, I can't see it. Because of the suffering that is so near and so close. What Peter is calling us to is to understand the broader field of suffering. And that's why he ties our suffering to Jesus. In this life, you're going to suffer. All suffering in the midst of it seems completely overwhelming and as if you're never going to be able to overcome it. But what we see in our forerunner Jesus is not only that suffering has an end, but that suffering has been overcome. Jesus moves all the way through suffering, the righteous from the unrighteous, all the way through death, and now sits high and exalted at the right hand of God, showing us the course, ultimately, to that our suffering will follow. So this morning, we're able to find encouragement, we're able to find solace, and we're able to find the course for our suffering. Our suffering is not the end, amen? And Jesus shows us the course, trajectory, and final goal of our suffering. Let me pray for us. Father God, we thank you that in the midst of this incredibly difficult text, you give us this beautiful truth of the trajectory of our suffering, of our future unification with Jesus. And we're thankful that he has overcome our suffering, that it is not left to us to overcome it. God, I thank you for Jesus. God, I thank you that in the exchange of the righteous for the unrighteous that we are beckoned to come. And God, we pray towards that end this morning for many in this room who have yet to surrender themselves to you. And God, we pray for those who are in the midst of suffering that they would find encouragement from their brother Jesus. Encouragement that there is an end. Encouragement that there, there is a purpose. That even in our suffering we might make much of Jesus. God, would you unite our hearts in song as we stand and, and we pray for your Holy Spirit to begin to make application in our hearts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.